Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. While CPAP is the leading treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, in some patients, surgical interventions may be appropriate. A new clinical practice guideline developed by the AASM is intended to help physicians determine when to discuss surgical referral with their patients. Today, we talked to two members of the task force that developed the guideline. Task Force Chair Dr. David Kent is Associate Professor and Director of Sleep Surgery within the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Vanderbilt University. And Dr. Jeff Stanley is Clinical Associate Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and a Sleep Medicine Specialist at the University of Michigan. Welcome to Talking Sleep. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, David, let's start with you. Tell me about this paper. This is not the first time that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has put together a surgical guideline um, regarding surgical interventions for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, it was felt several years ago, I believe around 2017 or so, that it was time for um, a review and an update of the literature. And so uh, a task force was uh, assembled um, through the uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine. There were uh, some individuals that uh, were approached within uh, the uh, surgical sleep realm, uh, an important member of that group being uh, Dr. Ed Weaver, actually, the University of Washington. And uh, that group started to um, put together what uh, a new guideline might look like. While the former guideline in 2010 um, was directed towards um, particular surgical interventions, it, it was recognized that there might be some value in instead defining what clinical scenarios might be appropriate for patient evaluation by a surgeon, recognizing that there are a lot of decisions that go into choosing the appropriate surgical intervention for a patient beyond just what is the potential improvement in, in AHI in this, this person. And so um, beyond, um, quote unquote, just updating uh, the surgical guideline, there was really a philosophical change in terms of um, moving away from individual procedural review, which is in some ways the purview of the surgeon uh, and a conversation between the surgeon and the patient, and directed more towards when should I have, when should I take this sleep medicine patient who's sitting in front of me and offer them a potential conversation with the surgeon? Well, and I really like that because really it's not, you know, me as a pulmonologist, you know, I'm not the right person to decide which surgery is appropriate, right? I just need to kind of make that decision of do I, you know, do we want to have a conversation with the surgeon? So I, I do kind of like that approach. And I really appreciated how you, um, I thought it was really nice to read because you put all the important stuff like early in, in the statement. And so tell me about the committee and sort of the genesis of this paper specifically. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, um, I'm glad to hear you say that. We tried to get everything important up front because you want to, you want to grab and keep your reader. <laughs> um, so uh, I thought that, this was really um, a, a progressive uh, committee construction uh, on the on the part of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, there were several uh, dual boarded um, sleep medicine and uh, otolaryngology uh, surgeons on the uh, committee. Um, we also had uh, sleep medicine uh, uh, represented with uh, several individuals. Um, 
and that that sort of mixed background and evaluation, uh, I felt not didn't just bring uh, different expertise to the table in terms of understanding perhaps what might be uh, getting discussed in in some of the more detailed literature, but it also brought different perspectives to the table in terms of just how to how to find agreement using these new uh, criteria for conducting uh, systematic reviews and how to uh, structure and 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 frame the argument and and frame the discussion in a way that would be well received by uh, all the involved stakeholders. So I've kind of noticed that in the last you know few position statements that it just seems like this is a, a change in structure, right? To use this grade criteria. So I wonder if you can if you can help me remember what all of that means. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to the AASM's credit, there has been an effort to. Uh, standardize uh, the protocol by which uh, literature is reviewed and evaluated and incorporated into uh, decision making for uh, for these systematic reviews and subsequent guideline construction. The structure uh, of this guideline is 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 crafted around being able to look or to incorporate literature that is maybe not always coming from the ideal. Uh, double-blind, uh, randomized, you know, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial, which can be especially difficult in in in, in the surgical literature. Um, but to take a, a body of literature and look at the evidence size, or excuse me, look at the effect sizes, uh, look at the evidence base in its totality, and to still be able to make conclusions based off of that information. You know, for instance, I think that there's been some discussion in the last few years about these RCTs that have been published looking at the uh, medical benefits of CPAP. And there's been some frustration in looking at the effect sizes among the sleep community, seeing that um, uh, when effect sizes aren't as large as individuals sometimes feel like they experience in clinical practice, there's a lot of criticism that many of these patients are non-sleepy sleep apneics that are mm-hmm. enrolled in these studies because um, you have to maintain beneficence and do and do right by the patients. And so um, you can think about that concept similarly in the surgical literature. It can be um, it can be a huge problem ethically to um, to randomize patients in the in the surgical realm um, to a particular surgical intervention when it may not be anatomically appropriate for them. There are massive difficulties in blinding patients and mm-hmm. sham surgery comes with its its own um, ethical complications as well. And so well, and that's just it, right? This idea of subjecting somebody to sham surgery. You know, yeah, that, it's, I, <laughs> that's yeah, problematic. You, know, you don't have to be a doctor to understand that that could be um, uh, something that that could be potentially problematic from an ethical standpoint. And so the idea is to take this large literature base that we do have with large effect sizes and say, well, what can we conclude from these studies, even if they're not optimally constructed from a theoretical standpoint? So break it down for me. When should a patient speak to a surgeon? Well, uh, I think the truth is that we'll we'll get into that with some of these uh, recommendations. Um, the, the recommendations that that we're discussing here really do try to define um, in a in a clear way for the sleep medicine physician uh, clinical scenarios where a conversation with a surgeon can be 
truly beneficial. I, I will say, in, in my own personal opinion, that I don't think that there's a wrong time to speak with a surgeon. A patient may go in for a surgical evaluation just on a fact-finding mission to understand what all of their particular treatment options are and may come out of that appointment understanding that they're actually a very poor surgical candidate. Mm. Was it a waste of time for that patient to get that information that they were seeking? That you know could be debated from sort of different metrics, but uh, if the patient feels empowered in terms of making a better decision about their own treatment and care, I wouldn't consider that a wasted visit personally. See, I'd love to hear you say that because sometimes we will send our patients to the surgeon and the response is, why are they here? They're not a candidate. <laughs> so I appreciate that you're that you're lending this other nuance to it, that there is benefit from speaking to the expert, right? Like there is benefit in somebody saying these are the specific risks and this is your specific anatomy and this is the specific procedure I would consider for you. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, Another aspect of these guidelines that the AASM has prioritized is, you know, across the board, I think beyond just this guideline, which is one of the earlier ones to use the grade criteria, is really one evaluating data in a patient-centered fashion, but also making recommendations that are patient-centered. And so uh, a lot of what this guideline is oriented towards is empowering patients with information so that they can make the best decision for their own care instead of us telling them, this is what you're going to do. This is the way it's going to be. Um, and I personally think that that is, a, you know, probably even the way to help sort of improve CPAP compliance, right, is, is for a patient to understand yeah. that it really is the best treatment option for them and to feel like it was a choice that they made as opposed to something that was foisted upon them. <laughs> right. So so let's go through those four major recommendations. So I'm, I'm going to read this first one out to you and then, and then let's talk about it a little bit. We recommend that clinicians discuss referral to a sleep surgeon with adults with OSA and a BMI under 40 who are intolerant or unaccepting of PAP as part of a patient-oriented discussion of alternative treatments. And this was, or alternative treatment options, sorry. And this was labeled strong. So tell me what this means. Yeah, so I think this is uh, Jeff Stanley. So I think the, the purpose of this first statement was really uh, to acknowledge that CPAP is the gold standard for treatment but that other treatment options are available for those who are CPAP intolerant or, or potentially those who refuse uh, CPAP treatment. And the purpose of this uh, guideline was not to review all the possible treatment options, including oral appliance and positional therapy and the like, but really to focus on outcomes of surgical intervention and to, to look at the balance between risks and harms and really to take the burden away from a sleep medicine physician from being up to date in terms of the, the detailed uh, knowledge that a surgeon may have about risks and benefits, and again, particulars of patient selection. So, so this particular uh, recommendation was labeled as strong, uh, primarily due to the large effect size. So we looked at mm -hmm. structural upper airway surgery, and as a whole, there's a reduction in AHI by 60%, you know, a reduction in RDI by 70%, and then additional variables, you know, we talked about patient-centered outcomes. Uh, snoring was significantly reduced. That's not, you know, highly focused on when we uh, practice uh, sleep medicine. Uh, True. Especially for CPAP-tolerant patients, since that usually is eliminated. But snoring was significantly reduced. Epworth was reduced on average by six points. The FOSQ increased by three to four points. And then there was other parameters that were examined, including 
you know, effects of this type of surgical intervention on both systolic and diastolic blood pressures with reductions in six uh, in, in between two and three millimeters of mercury, respectively. So the effect sizes were, were, were strikingly large and the, the risk of any long-term harm was strikingly low. So that, that was sort of the foundation for this particular recommendation. Okay, so that seems pretty straightforward to me. So let's talk about the second recommendation. We recommend that clinicians discuss referral to a bariatric surgery with adults with OSA and obesity, so class 2, class 3, BMI greater than greater equal than uh, equal to 35, who are intolerant or unaccepting of PAP as part of a patient-oriented discussion of alternative treatment options. And this was also strong. So this one also seems really straightforward to me. And and I'm just kind of anticipating. Um, is there pushback from from cert from like insurance to cover this? So um, I'm not a bariatric surgeon. Uh, I will tell you that actually, to, to my understanding, we did have a bariatric surgeon on the um, uh, mm-hmm. on the task force. Um, and my understanding is that actually sleep apnea is one of those strong obesity related mm-hmm. comorbidities that can actually help. Uh, justify uh, situations with insurance when a patient is uh, a candidate for bariatric surgery. And I think that, um, you know, some individuals have noted that, you know, there seems to be overlap almost between these, right. uh, between the um, the first recommendation and the second recommendation, right? What do you do with a patient who has a BMI between 35 and 40 sitting in front of you? And the idea behind both of these that Jeff was getting at is, you know, what we're trying to do here is there's a patient who's sitting in front of you telling telling you directly to your face, I feel like I've tried sort of every modification that we can make to this CPAP machine and it's just not working for me. Mm-hmm. What else can I do? Um, and and that's what these um, these these two items and really the others are 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 oriented towards is saying, well, BMI is less than forty, you know. Uh, you, based on the evidence that's available, you would be, uh, or, or it'd be reasonable for you to potentially have a conversation with a surgeon to see what potential surgical options are, are out there. And um, the patient may, may forego that. They may say, no, I'm not interested in surgery. I don't want to talk about it. Um, or uh, they may be interested in going on a fact-finding mission and then understand down the road that for whatever reason, they're not a good surgical candidate after a conversation with the surgeon. But it's really opening that door and making that um, that conversation accessible so, to patients. Um, we get patients in the office all the time, or rather we get patients in who have found us after sort of their own searching and, and telling us that they were never even told that surgery was an option for their mm-hmm. sleep apnea, despite struggling for years to succeed with, you know, the the device and the equipment. And so, so it's really about getting uh, patients uh, access to a surgeon to have a conversation. And, you know, if they are falling into that BMI 35 to 40 range, um, both of these recommendations apply. There's no reason why a patient couldn't have a conversation about potential management options with an upper airway surgeon as well as uh, a bariatric surgeon to see what's right for them. Well, I do kind of like that you... Um that both are, are options, right? Like it's not just upper airway surgery and it's not just bariatric surgery, but if you fall into both buckets, then it opens up two pathways for you, right? You can send them to the bariatric surgeon and you can send them, you know, to the upper airway surgeon. Absolutely. Right. And, and really it's not an, an infrequent occurrence where patients come for surgical evaluation, hear the details of the procedure and, and you know, opt out. 
despite despite you know whatever the evidence may show in terms of success rates and and probably the most striking example to that at least in my experience has been with maxillomandibular advancement you know it's one of the most effective structural uh, surgeries available for treatment of obstructive sleep apnea yet at least uh, at the university that I practice in it's when we had an alternative to CPAP uh, program in place with a with multiple specialists attending, it was the least selected treatment option, uh, which I found fascinating, especially since it was presented as one of the most effective uh, effective treatments. So, just I just wanted to highlight, you know, the distinction between A and B. I know we talked about the gray zone between thirty five and and forty for BMIs, but but that BMI less than forty in the uh, in the first recommendation, mm-hmm. what what that emphasizes is is that. Really, there are, are terribly poor surgical results as the BMI uh, exceeds 40 and, and above. And that's even true for maxillomandibular advancement. It's been found to, to really negatively affect uh, treatment success. So, so for patients over 40, at least in my practice, I, I always refer them to bariatric uh, surgery or to the, the program, which you know, starts with the nutritional team uh, for evaluation. And if they're willing and interested, I always encourage patients to pursue that first who, who do have a you know, morbid obesity. Well, and who knows, right? I mean, maybe they lose weight and they still have a little sleep apnea, but then maybe they are better surgical candidates for upper airway surgery. Yep. Or for oral appliance or, right. or for other treatment options. Absolutely. You know, we, we looked at that, um, at that data as well. And, you know, the, the AHI uh, on average was reduced by two thirds. Uh, compared to the pre, you know, pre-bariatric uh, surgery state. And uh, for those that were still struggling with CPAP but still willing after bariatric surgery, it decreased the CPAP requirement by three centimeters of water pressure on average. So, so there's all sorts of you know, additional health benefits beyond sleep for bariatric surgery, but specific to disease severity, it did seem to have a, a pretty significant effect, even though it didn't yield a, you know, a complete cure for most. So this kind of ties into the next recommendation. We suggest that clinicians discuss referral to a sleep surgeon with adults with OSA, BMI under 40, and persistent inadequate PAP adherence due to pressure-related side effects as part of a patient-oriented discussion of adjunctive or alternative treatment options. And this was conditional. So talk to me about this. Is this about improving the sleep apnea or more? is this more about their ability to tolerate PAP therapy or, or is it both? So I think this particular recommendation is is different from recommendation one in that the goal here is um, is not just disease reduction as much as possible because this patient cannot succeed with CPAP. It it really is about reducing barriers to CPAP tolerance, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly pressure related side effects. And I think it's important to highlight here, you know, this this BMI that. Uh, of less than 40 is here because that's really where the body of literature that we reviewed is centered. Um, but part of this being conditional uh, is to note that there are patients that can have severe anatomic abnormalities and who can be you know, larger than 40 um, that would potentially still uh, respond to surgical interventions um, in a way that they can go from somebody who's struggling with aerophasia, just incredible mask leaks where they cannot get a good seal, smothering to a state where they uh, they tolerate um, PAP much better. And I, I think a, um, the best conceptualized example of this is functional nasal surgery, mm-hmm. surgery that is designed to 
uh, decrease nasal resistance, whether it's a septoplasty or more involved septorhinoplasty, which is uh, uh, surgery on the front of the nose to address uh, flow limitation at, at the front of the nose. A patient, you know, nasal resistance won't change so dramatically with body weight, but if a patient really has difficulty breathing through the nose, that can be one of the major barriers for uh, being able to tolerate and to benefit from PAP comfortably, especially a nasal mask interface. And so um, uh, addressing um, that concern with patients who are saying, I, you know, I want to use CPAP, I'm motivated to use it, but I just, I can't get comfortable with it because of these pressures. Um, the evidence shows that upper airway surgery um, including nasal surgery, can help reduce CPAP pressures, as Jeff was saying earlier, by about two to three centimeters of water pressure, which can be all the difference uh, for patients that are struggling to uh, accommodate well to it. So let's take a short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at AASM.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking to Drs. David Kent and Jeff Stanley about the new AASM Clinical Practice Guideline, Referral of Adults with Obstructive Sleep Apnea for Surgical Consultation. So we've gone over the first three recommendations. Let's... and, and what I'm hearing, that general message is that we probably should open up that door for our patients to at least have a conversation with a surgeon earlier. Uh, and, and I guess I'm sensing that we as sleep clinicians, the non-surgical sleep clinicians, we shouldn't be the barrier, right? We shouldn't be the ones deciding that they should or should not have surgery, right? If they, if they are so inclined, we should send them to the surgeon. Well, I think that was the the, the strong feeling of the, the group prior to uh, you know, setting out on this guideline paper was that oftentimes patients don't know the full array of options. They're told CPAP is the gold standard. And then if they fail CPAP, they oftentimes have failed, uh, you know, in their minds, all the treatment options. So right. uh, it, it's not, uh, again, uncommon to hear that patients in our clinics weren't aware of surgical options, or at least not the array of surgical options, and some were not aware of oral appliance you know, therapy or mandibular advancement device type treatment as potentially effective. And, and in general, you know, it's it's true that sleep uh, surgery or surgery for sleep apnea, you know, gave itself a maybe a relatively bad name, you know, in the 1980s and, and maybe up until the early 1990s when only one surgery was available, uh, uvula palatal pharyngoplasty. And so if you saw a surgeon, that's what you were offered. And if you agreed to surgery, that's what you got. And, and of course, we all know that, you know, isolated, uh, you know, single level surgery of the palate uh, on a whole, if you line up 100 people, has a relatively low success rate. The majority of patients do not get a significant improvement. Even fewer get, you know, relief or complete uh, resolution of their sleep apnea. So, you know, some of that I think has carried over into, to more recent years, and really in the last decade, you know, additional surgical treatments have become available that are more effective uh, and have been shown to be less, you know, potentially uh, morbid. And and one of the most exciting developments is in the area of upper airway stimulation. So you know, surgery traditionally is focused on structure because that's what mm -hmm. the surgery is meant to do uh, until you know the recent development of the uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulator. 
And so, you know, things have definitely changed. There's a lot more known and there's been modifications of, of previous, you know, surgeries looking at multi-level obstruction that have improved success rates in a fairly dramatic fashion compared to what, you know, historically was, you know, maybe a 40% quote unquote success rate using some definitions that are not you know, fully agreed upon in terms of 50% reduction in, you know, an older definition of mild sleep apnea, which was an AHI of four, uh, 20 uh, or below, you know, back before 1999. So it seems like the first three recommendations are saying, you know what, consider surgery earlier. But then I, the fourth recommendation is we suggest clinicians recommend PAP as initial therapy for adults with OSA and a major upper airway anatomic abnormality prior to consideration of referral for upper airway surgery. And this is conditional. So on one hand, we should send people to the surgeon, but still PAP is our first choice. Am, am I understanding that right? So. <laughs> this is the the recommendation that I think catches people uh, a, a little off guard the first mm -hmm. time they read this, and sometimes takes a, a a second or third read to sort of uh, fully understand. And the conditional on this particular statement is uh, indeed important. Just it is it is in the third one. So what's going on here is that this is the patient that walks in the office, and you know from across the room you can see that they've got the biggest tonsils on the planet, and so mm -hmm. you're inclination to say, well, yeah, we got to send this patient to get their, their tonsils out. While the effect sizes for surgical interventions are indeed large, when we put that up um, against the, the theoretical intervention of perfect CPAP treatment and compliance, um, all of these recommendations are oriented towards reducing sleep apnea burden as much as possible for patients who can't get that perfect disease reduction from full CPAP compliance. And so um, while the effect sizes for surgery are very large, they may not ultimately be quite as effective as somebody who can tolerate and benefit and, you know, frankly, love wearing a CPAP machine. So what the conditional is about here is that even if a patient has huge tonsils, if they are willing to trial CPAP and don't have any other medical indication that would indicate go get surgery, we recommend that they try CPAP first. If they struggle with it, if they're having pressure-related difficulties, if they become unaccepting of CPAP, they no longer fall under this recommendation. They fall under either recommendations one or mm. two or three because of that CPAP intolerance. The sort of other important conditional component of this is that a patient may have other indications for surgery right up front. For instance, if they have huge tonsils and they've got chronic recurrent tonsillitis, well, that's certainly a medical justification for getting those big tonsils out of there. And a wonderful side effect of that may be that it helps their sleep disordered breathing. Similarly, a patient may have a significant craniofacial abnormality, an open bite deformity. They've got difficulties chewing or they've got major cosmetic concerns. We're addressing that with a, with a, a functional craniofacial surgery also seems to help their sleep apnea in a very productive way. Those patients surgically may, or it, rather, those patients certainly may benefit from an upfront um, surgical consultation and even intervention, hence the conditional label that's mm. applied to this particular recommendation. It's funny that I use that same, that same verbiage that, well, you know what, getting rid of your sleep apnea or improving your sleep apnea might be a great side effect of <laughs> the surgery that you already need anyway. Exactly. So there was something in there that said that the statement was based off of low quality data. What does that mean? So the, the majority of the, the evidence and publications that were reviewed are considered low quality 
due to the risk of bias associated with observational studies. And so that, that's really what that refers to. There is also some randomized or a few randomized control trials that were thought to be of moderate quality, but, but not high quality due to imprecision associated with small sample size. So I think that's what that refers to. And again, without the ability to, uh, to, to compare surgery and sham surgery, it's, it's really difficult uh, to have you know, good, high-quality evidence for this type of a, of a question. But there's still a lot of data, though, that exists, right, that helps to guide management. Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing about the grade criteria is that it's structured so that, yes, you obviously consider the um, the underlying construction of uh, a particular study as you incorporate it into your evidence base and you move to answer uh, a clinical question that has been posed. But it's also designed to incorporate effect size, um, to evaluate for possible confounders that exist within uh, less than optimal literature so that you can look at it in this transparent, eyes open fashion and say, you know, even if we don't have the uh, academically optimal um, double blind RCT, which isn't possible in some of these surgical interventions, we can still look at um, a variety. A large swath of data mm. with large effect sizes across that data and come to meaningful conclusions that are potentially beneficial to patients. And so has that evidence changed then compared because the, the paper before this was back, what, 2010-ish? Yeah, I would say that there's been probably um, a, a, a couple substantial changes in the world of sleep surgery. Uh, one is I think that there's been a concerted effort on the part of surgeons to do a better job of phenotyping the upper airway and determining what uh, surgical interventions uh, are appropriate for a patient. We've seen a real uh, explosion in the use of drug-induced sleep endoscopy, uh, which is undergoing continued sort of active research within the surgical realm to uh, investigate how that uh, helps to better identify what particular uh, regions of the airway may be most vulnerable for a patient. We've seen a big evolution in terms of the uh, um, individualized interventions that are available for, especially in the, the soft tissue realm. Um, there are many modifications of palatal surgery that are intended to address particular vulnerabilities uh, in a given patient's anatomy. And we've even seen an evolution in some of the um, craniofacial surgery, mm. uh, a, a popularizing of um, uh, mandibular uh, osteotomy and, and, um, and coronal uh, distraction that can help widen the airway in a way that the traditional MMA may not fully address. And then the um, really big uh, advent or um, uh, evolution that we've seen since the 2010 paper is the approval and the popularization of hypoglossal nerve stimulation mm -hmm. therapy, which has become a very important treatment option for a large group of CPAP intolerant patients. I think that's worth highlighting too. I mean, that's been a major development in the field. People have you know, been working on that uh, on that concept for more than a couple decades. And, you know, in 2014, when the hypoglossal nerve stimulator was approved, it, it really has changed, uh, maybe even revolutionized, revolutionized mm -hmm. our uh, field. You know, the, the five-year data uh, on upper airway stimulation shows that about 80% of patients can achieve an AHI less than 15, and, and about 44% of patients in one of the more recent publications at five years 
have an AHI less than five. So, you know, we, we really never have talked about, you know, success in, in terms of cure in the past when it comes to surgical results. We usually talk about, you know, success in terms of the degree of improvement. Mm. But rarely will you see you know, reports, if you go back 15 or 20 years, talking about how many patients achieved an AHI less than five. It, it just it was so, so infrequent that it wasn't meaningful information when you were comparing you know, different types of surgical technique to each other. So I think that's been a, a really major development. And there's ongoing research in terms of patient selection and looking for predictors of success. So I think that's going to continue to evolve uh, over the next you know, decade or more. Mm. So one thing, you know, that we've talked about is either changing, you know, doing surgery to change the severity of sleep disorder breathing and then kind of talking about getting people into this more CPAP tolerant state. And so in my mind, I usually will go through, you know, allergy testing and and some sort of nasal steroid or or what have you, but should I be sending them to the surgeon earlier? Um, there's certainly nothing wrong with conservative medical management, especially if the patient is excited about it and on board. And uh, in fact, we often see with something like uh, nasal obstruction that even if there is um, a uh, huge anatomic abnormality, a massively deviated septum, those patients struggle with getting insurance authorization if they haven't trialed some of that conservative medical therapy anyway that really won't make a lick of difference for a septum that's sitting <laughs> against the right wall of the nose. Um, so it's not wrong to do as long as the patient understands that this is where we start. And if you're not getting benefit, this is our next step so that um, they understand that it's not um, uh, a futile treatment that uh, that, that has no potential uh, alternative management plan if they're not getting success. Yeah, and I, and I think the short answer to that question is yes, if you ask, well, can we get patients to a CPAP tolerant state? It's not just the reduction in pressure settings that can be achieved with nasal surgery and the like, but you know, the, the studies that we reviewed also you know, showed an increase in hours of use of CPAP following intervention. So mm. I think just over two hours a night on average, again, increase you know, following surgery. So it really does have a real life effect. It's not just you know, nuanced by by changing a pressure setting, which may help some and not not other patients. And and we certainly all are familiar with you know mask comfort, especially for those patients who may have entanglement issues with the tubing or with mm. uh, with claustrophobia. So if you can convert someone from a full face mask to a nasal mask, even if there's not a major change in pressure setting, oftentimes you know those patients are now you know compliant. That's it's a really pretty, good point. Be pretty striking the differences uh, that you can achieve in a six week period following surgery. So have you all noticed a change in referral pattern since this big um, Phillips recall? Like, Are you seeing more patients there that now are kind of stuck because they can't use their CPAP anymore or they're worried about their CPAP? I have not. I'm getting um, patients through the door that uh, are asking about it. I, I would, so I wouldn't say that it's changing referral patterns because I think that, um, you know, the ASM has done a good job of outlining what the management pathway is um, uh, for this. And so uh, patients who are reaching their sleep medicine physicians understand that, um, you know, there are, um, there are, are, are different uh, management pathways to go through if they're doing well with CPAP to get them on a unit that is um, expected to um, continue to provide benefits. Uh, but I, I have had some, uh, patients that are self-referred coming in the door saying, I'm really worried about continuing to use my CPAP machine. Um, what are my other options? Mm -hmm. And uh, for those patients who are 
um, have, have benefited from CPAP and are CPAP compliant, we have a sort of a long conversation about um, sort of you know individual risk and um, and you know getting over the hump of and, and getting back to uh, continued CPAP use in a way that was previously successful for them unless they feel strongly about pursuing some different intervention. So final thoughts? I think for me, you know, I hope that um, the community finds this to be a, a clinically relevant and, and helpful document. I, I, I'm not so sure that while there was a lot of effort that was put into the 2010 guideline, I'm certain that it was probably frustrating for uh, a sleep medicine physician in years past to say, well, based on this evidence, I'm going to send a patient for a maximum mandibular advancement and then the patient go off to the surgeon and, you know, to end up with a different intervention than had been planned. But um, as we discussed at the at the top of the hour here, there are many uh, decisions that come into play for a patient in selecting an appropriate surgical intervention, if they select one at all, uh, that have to do more than just what their relative odds or success are, as, as Jeff pointed out with the um, patient selection numbers for for MMA earlier, and while that can be a, a fully effective surgery that we wholeheartedly endorse for some patients, it just isn't right for them. Um, so I, I think that um, highlighting that this is really uh, meant to empower the sleep medicine physician in terms of their discussions of alternative uh, management options with patients, and that it's intended to be a, a patient-centered document that's helping patients find the treatment that's best for them. Uh, we hope it proves useful, and I think Jeff and I would both agree that uh, we felt that the ASM was really forward-thinking in, in, in structuring the document this way and, and, and collaborating with the, uh, the surgical sleep community in authoring it and putting it together. Jeff, final yeah. thoughts? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the idea here is to have a collaborative, you know, working environment for the for the sake of the patient. So, uh, it, it's always discouraging. Uh, when you see a patient in the clinic who had no, uh, you know, awareness or no sort of preview of other treatment options and who ultimately developed CPAP intolerance, uh, and then was left untreated for years or, you know, in some cases, decades. So I, I always find that the most discouraging when patients weren't, you know, provided sort of upfront information about alternative treatments. Again, it doesn't have to be surgery. It could be oral appliance therapy and the like, but but those that, that ultimately fail CPAP, even under the supervision of a uh, sleep physician, uh, you know, they, they still deserve at least the option of additional treatment, even if it may not be the treatment most likely to deliver a, a complete cure. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk with us today and for your work on this guideline. You know, we really do need to consider these surgical options for patients who struggle with PAP adherence. And I really appreciate how this was framed in a way to empower our patients with a lot of options. So thank you for being here today. Happy to be here, Seema. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Seema. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>